week of classes. Of course, for those of you who are students, there is that thing called final exams next week. So, uh, but we certainly appreciate everybody being here tonight. And we'd like to welcome you to the, we'll say part two, right? That's probably a good way of putting it. Part two uh, for our guest speaker, whom I'll introduce in a moment, of our Denison Scholars Series. And um, I just, we happen to have with us tonight, I'd like to welcome, ask them to stand up, uh, uh, Dan and Graciela Dennison. Thank you. And the, uh, the Denison Speaker Series, basically, the mission of the, of the series is to increase the understanding of the historical experiences, the cultural traditions, and innovations and the political status of Native peoples in the United States and Canada. And we are fortunate with us this semester to have for our scholar, uh, spring 2011, Ms. Winona LaDuke. And just a little bit of uh, biographical background before I ask her to come up and uh, take, take the podium. Uh, Basically, Winona is an internationally acclaimed author, uh, orator, and activist. She, uh, ba her, her mission, we might say, is devoted to protecting the lands and lifeways of Native American peoples and the communities. She is the founding director of the White Earth Land Recovery Project. And this is a nonprofit organization, and it's based on restoring the land-based and the culture of the White Earth Anishinaabeg. She's also the executive director of the Honor the Earth, which basically works on a national level as an advocacy organization on behalf of Native uh, American environmental groups. In 1996 and 2000, she dabbled even in politics, being the vice presidential candidate on a ticket for the Green Party along with Mr. Ralph Nader. And her, uh, tonight, I should say, her uh, speaking uh, engagement for us is titled Deconstructing America, Identity, Empire and Naming, Renativizing Michigan and Beyond. On that note, I'd like to welcome Winona. Join me in a round of applause. That's a recording. The PowerPoint is relatively new to me. So if we skip some, can you hear me? Okay, well that's good. That's a good start. Greeting you in Ojibwe, as you may have gathered and uh, telling you where I'm from, which is the White Earth Reservation, which is up in northern Minnesota. Um, do you all know where Minnesota is? Very good. I'm between Bemidji and Fargo. How's that? Kind of northwestern. It's one of seven Ojibwe or Anishinaabe reservations in northern Minnesota. As you know, there are 19 in, this, in uh, the northern part of five American states, and there's about 100 reserves in Canada. So the people that are from this territory are uh, widespread. The border is actually of little relevance to us, quite frankly because we're on both sides. But um, thank you again very much for the honor of being here. 
with you tonight, and I particularly wanted to acknowledge the Denison family, your generosity for supporting um, the work that we're doing down here. Um, as I reflected on kind of the wide-ranging topic that I'm going to try to address, I hope you can hang with me, because it is going to be kind of wide-ranging. Um, this month, in our language, is called Iskigami Zigigizis. Iskigami Zigigizis, which is the maple syruping wound. I assume you guys have just finished syruping, is that right? You have no idea, is that right? Yeah. Come on, come here, come a little slack. You guys notice the maple is running and there's sap, right? And it is over. About three weeks ago, did you guys finish? We are just finishing. We just finished this week. I was laughing because I don't know if any of you work. I work with this guy. He's kind of an Eeyore. Do you have any people who work with kind of like an Eeyore? He's like, oh, it's not a very good season. Oh. And we got like another three blasts of snow. And there you go. Another 100 gallons of syrup. So uh, we're good. The moon that is coming up now, which actually is here, is uh, Wabaganagizis which is the flower moon. Then we have a moon called Odeiminagizis, which is a strawberry moon, mean gizis, blueberry moon. Moon that follows that is called Monominakegizis, wild rice making moon, wild rice making moon, of which you have very little rice making in Michigan, but used to have more back when your ecosystems were intact. And then uh, we have a moon that follows that, which is called Watebagagizis, when the leaves change color, Banakweogizis, when the leaves fall, Gashkadnogizis, which is when it uh, freezes over, freezing over moon, which is around November. And then we have a moon referred to as Manadugizis Soons, little spirit moon. Giji Manadugizis, great spirit moon. Namebinagizis, <clears throat> sucker moon, referring to the sucker fish when they move under the ice. And then we have the moon we just finished before, which is called Anabonagizis, which is the last time I was here. Anabonagizis. Can you all say that? I'm going to have you try that one. Anabonagizis. Anabonagizis. That's not too hard. Huh? That one is, uh, means um, hard-crusted snow moon, which refers to as it snows and then it thaws and it freezes again. Yeah? Also known as the moon you don't want to do a face plant in the snow. So I wanted you to hear my language. I like to start off by saying that because that is the language Oma, a king of this land here. But I also wanted you to notice that that, um, that, is, uh, uh, that, a, that is a calendar that has, there's no months named after a Roman emperor. I just wanted you to reflect on that. That it is possible to have an entire worldview and an entire calendar that has nothing to do with empire or Rome. And it's okay. So that's what I'm going to talk about in general is the idea of how you deconstruct empire and the thoughts of empire and the practice of empire. But in saying that, I'm going to lay a little bit more of a foundation for indigenous thinking. Um, I'd like to use this slide, which is a, some art from our region. And this is a piece of art by Gordon Coons, and it reflects our worldview of Dinoe Munganatuk, that we are all related. It is also, um, it is, if you see there's spirit lines that relate between the beings, those are called spirit lines, and then inside the being showing that they are alive and have spirit unto themselves. I just wanted you to see that kind of art because that is the art reflects a worldview that is not necessarily something you might see in a museum here. Um, because by and large, most museums do not contain indigenous art. And as an undergraduate at Harvard, what I noted was that if you wanted to study the art from Europe, you went to the fine arts department. And if you wanted to study the art from Native America, you went to anthropology. And I suggest to you that that is a, one could say a bias, we could stick to that. Or we could also say that that is a one worldview, which is kind of small, 
and does not value the other worldviews that exist outside of Europe. And so I'm going to ask you tonight to think a little bit about what it is to be outside of Europe in thinking, because I think that indigenous thinking and indigenous worldviews pre-empire and post-empire are worth considering, particularly in light of where we are today. Now I say that knowing that you are all a beneficiary of an American education, as am I. I happen to be fortunate enough to have an indigenous education as well. And in that, I know a few things. For instance, and you know these as well, if you go back into your depths of your mind. You know, for instance, that there are many indigenous um, facets of indigenous thinking that are very dominant in America, but yet they are, um, they are covered up. And we'll use that phrase for lack of a better word. That is to say, for instance, even notions of democracy in this country. Your founding fathers, when they came here, they pretty much had no experience with democracy. They fled feudalism, monarchy, right? You know, they didn't have it. It wasn't going very well in Europe. Is that fair to say? When they came over here, and they, they, in their heart, they wanted something which is better, right? And so they came here to try to form something that would be good and would be just for people, justice for all. And in that, they, there were people who were here, although some would say that Columbus discovered us, but we were pretty good. And in that, uh, we had forms of governance that existed for thousands of years. And perhaps the best example which entirely uh, became adopted or was reflected on in the American democracy was that of the Iroquois Confederacy. I don't know if you're very familiar with the Iroquois Confederacy, but the, um, the Iroquois consisting of the Oneidas, the Onondagas, the uh, um, well, they're called the Haudenosaunee, the overall um, the Senecas, the Cayugas, Tuscaroras, the Mohawks. Those are the confederated nations who came to be the Iroquois Confederacy. And they confederated early on because they decided that peace was a better plan than war. And they had warred successfully for generations. And at a certain point, there's a, a great story told of how they, uh, they, 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 buried, they buried their weapons under what is called the Tree of Peace and formed the Iroquois Confederacy. And not everybody wanted to join. There was um, some holdouts who were bitter in their hearts and, and did not want to quit warring. And the last one, they, uh, the women, is who actually initiated the petitioning. And they, and did, that, they did that same thing as they do in uh, Lysistrata, in that um, the women held out. They said, uh, no sex if you guys are going to keep fighting, pretty much. That's a really good strategy, it turns out. And uh, in that, um, the Iroquois Confederacy seemed to come to its senses more quickly, except for one old guy who was really stubborn and apparently had no woman because she had been killed. And in that, uh, his name was the Tadadaho. And in their mythology, as they describe him, they describe him as someone who had, like, Medea, snakes in his hair. Yeah? Medusa. Medusa, that's right. Snakes in, snakes in his hair. And in that, uh, he was very painful. And he was in such grief and rage. And they petitioned him. And it took a long amount of petitioning for him to finally become enlightened, at which point he came into the fold of peace. And his name is the Tadadaho. And he is something like the Dalai Lama, in that there was a Tadadaho in each generation, and it is appointed by the spiritual leaders of the, the Iroquois Confederacy, or the Haudenosaunee. But I tell you this because they have a representational democracy. They have long houses, 
And in those houses, each the, the, the families are represented in the longhouses. And it is an interesting dynamic because the chiefs are condoled, is the, is the term that is used. Have, have, have any of you heard this story? How many of you heard this story before? Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, I, I must tell you the rest of the story then. The chiefs are condoled, which is an interesting term. It is to say that when you become a leader in your nation, they offer you their condolences because the responsibility is so great to take up the leadership of your nation, yeah? Which is an interesting lesson for an American politician. But in addition to that, the appointment and removal of chiefs, that responsibility is held by the women, the clan mothers. Which I would suggest when Ben Franklin and, and all of them went up and took notes for the American democracy, they missed that essential point. And women did not have the right to vote till much later in this country. But those who took notes, being Ben Franklin, go look this up in history, you find it. So I tell you that indigenous thinking um, is significant in terms of how it has framed America, but we're never given credit. That's what I'm trying to tell you in part. And that perhaps one thing that one might consider is, is that in rethinking kind of where we are, we might need to look outside of the box in which we find ourselves today. Um, later, I'll talk a little bit more about indigenous agriculture, but we will just go with the fact that most of your ancestors, when they came, were hungry and had no plan. Is that fair? You understand what I'm saying? There was like no Walmart, Myers. They didn't have a plan and they didn't know what was here, right? So who would be feeding them, right? That'd be us, right? Good agricultural systems, good agrobiodiversity, things that we lack today in America, but things which existed. So I talk a little bit more about that later. Let me show you a couple more pictures from my area to show uh, if I figure out how to do this. Where does this point? Anywhere? Don't do that to me. Ah, there you go. That worked. This is uh, what you call Cosmo genealogy. This is art that is also not considered fine art. Uh, this is an artist from our community named Rabbit Strickland. This is uh, Nana Boujou and his grandmother, Nokomis. Some of our ancestors who are half spirit, half human. And they are the people from this land, or the spirits that are from this land. This is our territory. Most of those are about 8,000 years old, 5,000 years old. That's where we live for all this time. Um, you know, still around. A lot of these sites have been desecrated. That's why there's none in Michigan. But there's a few here in Michigan. They just aren't on this map. And uh, this is what you see at them. This is a, a, a rock painting. We paint with uh, some cool stuff. Um, I, I'm thinking it's like st st sturgeon glue and ochre. I don't know if that means anything to you, but let's just go with that lasts a long time. Those are not picked in, those are painted on. And if you, so if you're going to do graffiti that you want to last, that's what you need. This is on Lower Manitou Rapids, and this is my reservation, the Medewin. I'm a member of this society in 1906. So that's my religious practice. I'm not a Christian. I'm a member of our Medewin Society, which is about, dated to be about 6,000 years old, our religious practice. Uh, this is us also rock painting sites in the Blood Vein River, and this is uh, birch bark scrolls. Um, that's our people back in the day, and that's uh, how we still keep those scrolls today. So that's a little bit about me. Now today, in what I would like to discuss with you, I want you to come away with three, I want to ask you three basic questions um, for those of you who are forced to take notes for your classes. The three questions are basically, does Mother Earth have rights? That would be the first set of questions. Within that, 
or are, the other side of that is, are rights exclusive to those of human beings? Are humans the only ones with rights in this world? Second, is the Holy Land an exclusive construct? And third, what, does, what is sustainable society? And how does that look? Now I'm going to start a little bit with the second question, which is, is the Holy Land an exclusive construct? And uh, we're going we're to be surprised what slide comes up now. Oh, good, I did it. Um, I don't know if Angie is still here. Angie, are you in the back? Can you give the wave? This is Angie who saved me. She put together, I had this PowerPoint. We had a little bit of technological breakdown. We'll go down with that. And she, to the very last minute, was working on this with me. So you could thank her for this. We have a place on the right here. Is a place where the thunder beings rest in their migration from west to east. Wait, Great Kahneman. Great Kahneman. Andrea. Sorry, this is my son. Here, bring your stuff. You could just sit up here. You have to give this speech next time. Come on. He hasn't seen these slides. I make him see this. Don't you think that's fair? He's 11. And give the wave. <laughs> Good kind of a gasco. You could, you could hang with your guys, it's fine. Are you drawing? Okay. There's a place where the thunder beings rest in their migration from west to east. There is a place where the, um, the Kachinas come and the Apaches in their day see the sun rising and the spirits return. There's a place known as the place where that is the sixth resting place in our. Uh, Migration story as Anishinaabe from east to west, a place known as the Falls of a Woman's Hair, a place known as the Mother Canyon, and a place known where life begins. These are sacred places. This is the Holy Land, Oma'a King, for our Anishinaabe people. Not just our Anishinaabe people, for our indigenous peoples. I say this to you. And yet, at the same time, I know that you are unfamiliar with these places because they have been named and renamed. In its, in its foundation, this first, um, this Anamiki Waju is a place where the thunder beings rest in their migration from west to east. And as Anishinaabeg people, we observed that when the thunder beings moved from west, they would stop here on this mountain, which is near what is today known as the city of, Mount, uh, of, the city of Thunder Bay, Ontario. And it is called Thunder Bay because the thunder beings go there. But there is a reason in our cosmogenealogy as to why they stop there. And there is a balance that exists between the thunder beings and the Great Lakes. And that is something which we as Anishinaabeg have recognized for our many thousands of years in living in this region. So as Anishinaabeg people, we go there and we pray. We give thanks to uh, those beings. We often go there for what is known as a vision quest. And we go there to, to be better people and offer our offerings. But that mountain is not called the Mountain of the Thunder Beings. It is called, as you see here, Mount McKay, uh, which illustrates, as does Mount Graham, the place of the, of the uh, Kachinas and the, and the sacred place of the Apache people. It illustrates this problem I have in America, which is the daming of large mountains after small men. <laughs> and the idea somehow that we got it in our psyche that you can go through and stamp your name on it and put a flag in it and say it's yours. And related to that, this whole construct that we would name something as immortal as a mountain after something as mortal as a human. And what that does to our relationship to place 
and our consciousness. So this place here on the right is not threatened. It is as it is, and I would, I'm going to make a leap of faith that it will stay. Mount Graham, however, you see at the top what is known as the Pope Scope, which is a desecration for indigenous peoples, and particularly the Apache, who believe that uh, the, the Pope should not have a telescope on the top of their most sacred mountain. There's a huge debate within the Catholic Church, and I've never been quite clear why the Pope needed a telescope, but it is something that is uh, seen as a desecration to the Apache people. And uh, I'll show you a couple more slides here. This is the, plate, the falls of a woman's hair, the epicenter of the Columbia River ecosystem and of Columbia River indigenous people's culture inundated and drowned in a dam. 1959, I believe, is the year it was drowned. And that is, uh, again, a place that was valued and seen as sacred by one and not by another. There's a place known as the place that's the sixth resting place of the Anishinaabe and our migration. And in that place, it is uh, today, we, from there we saw where we were to go, Monica Wanning Manis, Madeline Island. And in seeing that, we were in this place called Spirit Mountain, which is next to the city of Duluth. And uh, this is indicative of what happens, which is a story that could be retold in Michigan, I'm quite sure. I was Odapana uh, Asema, I was given tobacco a number of times, but to come out there, and, and I don't know how you are about this, but I'm someone who often wishes that the bad idea would just go away. You know, that I would wake up one day and they've abandoned the really bad idea because it was just a bad idea to start with. In this case, the bad idea was to put a golf course in the middle of uh, a Spirit Mountain. And uh, the suggestion was, as this is a suggestion here in Michigan, and there's a suggestion over here at the, at the Mount Pleasant boarding school, essentially, is that can, can you, Ojibwe, can you have like multiple use of a sacred site? Can you guys like pray between the sixth and seventh hole? Going to be okay with that, you know? And this question is, is really a, a, a dilemma in America. So in this case, we had uh, uh, city council was giving the permit. And they asked me, the native people asked me if I would go there and testify, you know, at the city council. And it was a big debate if they would even let me testify. And I got there to testify and, and I was nervous. A lot of you may be surprised that I was nervous, but I was really nervous. And I got up there and I, um, you know, and I looked in that room and that room was packed, just like this packed room. And it was packed and there was uh, native people, spiritual people from our communities, elected sp uh, native people. Uh, every church was represented there. Um, you know, environmental groups, and everybody wanted to support basically religious freedom for Native Americans. And they came to support us. And I went there, and I testified in front of the city council, and I told about our migration. I told how that was kind of like, you know, as I said, I'm not Christian. It might be something like Mount Sinai to Ojibwe. I'm not sure. You know, also significant to the Cheyenne as well who began there. That is where they got their sacred medicine bundles, the Cheyenne. And so for us, it is not, uh, it's not just to be taken lightly. And many of our people have died there as well. So we wanted to protect it. And um, the city council listened in earnest to me. And then in succession, in succession, everybody came up and repeated the same stories. And in succession, the non-native people that were there from the churches, that were from the environmental groups, came and said, we would like to support American Indian religious freedom in the city of Duluth. We think that there's enough golf courses. And we don't think there's enough sacred sites. You know? And so we finished the testimony, and at the end of it, the city council vowed to pull the permit. We're very thankful. And then the mayor, who was not at the meeting, overrode that, vetoed it. But what I will say, thankfully, is that the mayor lost the next election, and there's no golf course on 
on uh, Spirit Mountain. So I tell you that story because that is this question that exists in America, which is, how sacred is it? Can you quantify it? What's the price tag of sacred? You know? And uh, I'm not sure who should be in charge of that. But it is this dilemma which exists here in this country. It is also a dilemma, uh, you know, which exists elsewhere. Um, today, the Grand Canyon, the Mother Mountain, or the Mother Canyon, uh, the birthplace of the Zuni people, of the Havasupai and the Hopi people, is today threatened with uranium mining. I cannot understand how you could be like the seventh wonder of the world and have uranium mines on your edge. You know, it seems like that some things uh, should be above mining. You know, at some point we should be able to say, that's enough. You know, cannot contaminate it, cannot mine it, leave it alone. You know, the sacred mother. And then here, right in town here, you have the question of the Mount Pleasant boarding school, which recently, as I understand it, the city has taken control of. And uh, that question, you know, um, a lot of our people went to school there. You know, I have some relatives, or my son certainly has some relatives, because he is from uh, Little Traverse Band, who attended school there. And many people did not ever make it out of there. And the question is, is should their, what they went through and their experience that they went through, should that never be considered? You know, should it just become a housing development you know, for the city of Mount Pleasant? Is that the just thing to do with history? Is that the just thing to do? You know? And I would recommend that it will be returned to the tribe, and I would recommend that you know, the discussion about maybe a tribal college or something there, educational institution, so that people do not forget history and do not forget what happened because it is worth something to, to, to all of us to know better who we are, where we came from, and mistakes that were made you know, in, in the past here, in the city of Mount Pleasant. Um, I have no idea what the next slide is. Ah, there we go. That's not bad. Let me talk a little bit about um, paradigms of empire versus paradigms of sustainability. In our teachings as Anishinaabeg people, we are blessed with a number of, of uh, teachings. One, would, I would say, would be Gichi Tibwewe and Gichi Tibwewe are the great law. In our perception, the Creator's law is the highest law, higher than the laws made by nations, states, or municipalities. And one would do well to live in accordance with the Creator's law. In order to do that, what we understand is that we as humans are, are different. You know, the rest of our relatives, they have things like, they have uh, intraspecies equity. That's a term that was an economic term I liked. In other words, pretty much, uh, we have a vast disparity of wealth between the rich and poor in this country, but in most species, pretty equal. If they're doing good, they're doing good. If they aren't doing good, they aren't doing good. You know, we have uh, understanding that we as humans have a different role. We have, we have a different responsibility. They all need, they, they don't need us, but we need all of them. Our relatives, whether they have wings or fins or hooves or roots, you know. I'm pretty darn sure that uh, the buffalo doesn't need us, but we could use them, you know this whole set of relations. This is part of uh, our teachings that, uh, you know, we have responsibilities. We have a teaching that is cyclical, which I talked a little bit about before. And the idea of the seasons and the moons being a cyclical reaffirmation of our place. And in our understanding, all things which are natural are cyclical, whether it's the moons, the tides, or our bodies. Those are cyclical um, systems. And we understand that we should try to reflect that as best as we can in our economics and in our way of life and in our practice. We are people that believe that 
um, all things have spirit. That was reflected in that graphic I showed you at the beginning. That uh, whether you are, in, in our language, most nouns are animate. Not all nouns, but for instance, even the word asin, the word for stone, is an animate noun in Ojibwe. Meaning has spirit, has standing unto itself. That is this question of the rights of nature and the rights of Mother Earth. In our indigenous worldviews, we have that understanding. We have an understanding that you take only what you need and you leave the rest. Because to disrespect the natural order, the natural world, to be greedy when you go out and harvest you know, your medicines. If you're harvesting a medicinal plant, you know you don't take them all. Because if you take them all, there would not be plants back there. And you have to treat them with respect, always offering thanks when you take a harvest. And just leave, just be respectful, don't be greedy. That's one of our fundamental teachings as indigenous people. And finally, we have this teaching that in each deliberation, one should consider the impact upon the seventh generation from now. One should consider the impact upon the seventh generation from now. Because we are the only ones who are present. Those other ones are not here. And they cannot, uh, they cannot, uh, uh, they are counting on us to make the right decision, you know. As we are thankful that our great, great, greats, you know, in our case, made some good decisions. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that those are basic tenets of sustainability. They are pre-empire and they are post-empire. They're how you're going to get along over the long haul. And I know that some of you may uh, be uncomfortable, but you'll be okay. But besides that, you know, I just want to say that it is possible to think outside the box and to be critical of certain tenets of practice and thinking in this society. And, and we are able to recover if we are courageous enough to consider that. So, um, I'm not sure what slide's coming up, but we're going to see here. Instead of believing that the Creator's Law is the highest law, um, well, this is the peak oil slide. I thought I took this one out. Uh, we got to peak oil, <laughs> which is to say, uh, turns out that the world does not have everything um, that we might want. At a certain point, we run out of things, and they are not available for us. And we need to learn. And so we consumed half the world's own oil supplies. You guys know this. Um, before most of you could drive. Now we're kind of on the downward slide, and good luck. Because the rest of the oil is in places where we probably don't want to get it. Like down at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. You know what I'm saying? up in the uh, tar sands in Alberta, polar ice cap, or maybe in some country uh, that might not want to give us their oil. And you already got a $100 billion a year war. This is not actually the right slides here now. Let me see if we got, well, can we use this one here? This is the teaching, um, this reflects the teaching that uh, somehow you make bans laws which say um, that's allowable. <laughs> that's what man's laws would say. Man's Law's trade pollution credits change the recommended daily allowances of uh, contaminants. So we've got 100,000 chemicals in the environment and no idea of their combined impact. Change radiation standards, right? And allow discharge like that. That's at the tar sands in Alberta. Man's Law does not actually reflect the uh, teaching that we are all related or that we all have a right. Reflected perhaps best in the, tr in the tragedy of the BP oil spill is one of the most recent and most graphic reflections of the destruction of the ecosystem. 
So instead of believing that, that things are animate or that we are all related, we believe that some things are more important than others. And the impact is, is, uh, is clear. Hmm. Let me go back here. Um, I could start guessing, but I'm not sure where that other slide went. Instead of believing that, um, instead of believing that we have uh, a cyclical system, we live in a linear economic system, reflected perhaps by this chart, which shows um, not only the amount of production, but the fact that we waste 57% of the energy between point of origin and point of final use. Perhaps the best examples, though, are two. I'm going to give you a social example and a physical example of a linear production system. In this society, we uh, have an economy that's based about 70% on consumption. That is to say, we buy a lot of stuff. In fact, it's not going to sound very nice, but I couldn't figure out where one town ended and another town stopped, began, as I drove in, northern, in this region of Michigan. And they all looked somewhat the same. And there was a lot of stores. And I kept wondering where the money came from to buy all the things that were in the stores and what we were doing buying all that stuff, which I hope that doesn't offend anybody. But this question of when you build a society which is based on taking natural resources and turning them into things that you buy and then maybe they last three months or maybe they last five years, and then you dump them, you end up with a couple of quandaries. The first was was a question posed to me by a young woman a couple of years ago who asked me, when they say throw it away, where is a way? Right? Not sure on that one, but that's a linear economic system. Not sure where a way is. If you guys got a clue on where a way is, you let me know. But besides that, we produce 50 trillion pounds of waste a year. And the waste that we produce, that doesn't include wastewater, which I cannot conceptually understand how you create wastewater. Right? Because as far as I know, they aren't making any new water. So we might not want to be people who consider that there's something called wastewater, right? That's a linear system, right? I'm going to give you the example of the social, ex the social example of a linear society is the creation of a prison system. What does that look like? We have the largest incarceration rate of any country in the world. That's what it looks like. Of the 9 million prisoners in the world, 2.1 million of those prisoners are in this country. And we have created, in fact, a huge industry in the prison industrial complex, where towns, small rural towns, wish and bid for prisons because you know there's long-term jobs. I would make the suggestion that that is actually not a tenable or sustainable long-term plan to keep imprisoning, impris imprisoning people in this country. That's a linear example of it. The idea of taking only what you need and leaving the rest is reflected in this, to say that if between point of origin and point of final use, 57% of the energy that is produced in our system is wasted, one would be, in fact, taking far more than one needs and wasting quite a bit on the way. A couple of really good examples of this, to be simple about it. I'm sure that these are LED light bulbs. But let us say they are not, and they are incandescent light bulbs. You are familiar with, you know what I'm talking about, the regular light bulb. So in that, the energy that goes into the light bulb, 90% of it turns to heat, and 10% of it turns to light. What you're after is light. 
not heat, right? And so that's an example of waste in an energy system. Y'all follow me on this pretty good? Okay. The second example of that would be, it's an Amory Levin's example, which I think is that 5% of the energy that goes into your gas tank ends up pushing you in your car. You know what I'm saying? The other 95% does a bunch of inefficient and somewhat efficient ways to move all that metal that's around you. You understand what I'm saying? So in that, what we're trying to do is move the person, not necessarily the bling or the tires or the trunk, right? So it's this question of how one builds a system which is not taking more than one needs and, and leaving the rest. And in that, we've created a system which is highly inefficient and one that takes a quarter of the world's resources at this point. We've diminished it from, we used to be a third, which requires constant intervention into other people's lands and constant violations of other people's human rights. And then uh, we will see if we can find this other slide here. This is the bad example of the commodification of the sacred. I didn't really like putting this slide in, but this is the example of factory farming, where you take life forms and they are no longer life forms, they're agricultural products, right? And you guys don't need a lot more slides on this. I'm gonna make a leap of faith that you have some idea what is going on with your food system and how it got to you from a farm like that to Myers Foods and, and to your food service, quite likely, right? Okay. Now, uh, I'm gonna tell you the solution here. And uh, there is no easy answer. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are some answers that are good. You know, this is the work that we are doing in my community. And um, as you heard in my introduction, I'm, I'm a rural development economist by training. You didn't actually hear that. Um, but I'm a rural development economist. And most of my work is in the question of how communities can, can, can determine their future and have quality of life. Um, and I find that that is not necessarily related to level of salary. I don't know if that's heartbreaking to you. But it turns out that being rich does not necessarily mean you're happy, right? And that quality of life on a worldwide scale, there are some basics of, of dignity that people desire. But many people, including many people in my community, would rather grow corn, harvest wild rice, hunt, fish, and live than go to a wage job. Are they considered to be non-evolved? Yes, by some. We happen to think that we're pretty good off, well off, though, you know? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that that's not a bad plan. I mean, by the time you're done, most people here work way too many hours and have very little time to spend that is quality time with their families, with their animals, right, on their land. So this is our work. What does this have to do with the issues that are around us? Um, let us start with kind of the idea of how you address the, the, the place we got ourselves to the place where we've consumed too much oil, the place where we've combusted ourselves towards the edge of oblivion. Is that fair to say? With climate change, right? Where we are, uh, we got it one degree, we're headed towards two, not good, right? Where we have a food supply which is transported across the country, 1,500 miles, your average meal. What happens when the price of oil goes up to your price of food? It's, thank you, very good. <laughs> That's good, I just wanna make sure people. So in other words, we are gonna increasingly lack food security and be more and more enmeshed in these issues to the extent that we are unable to deal with them. 
So this is what we were doing in my community. I just wanted to show you what happy people growing corn look like. Um, this is pre-industrial and post-industrial corn. Just as a point of reference, what I would tell you that there's about 8,000 varieties of corn that were developed in the Americas, and that we Ojibwe people, or Anishinaabe people, are the northernmost corn growers in the world. We pushed corn 100 miles north of Winnipeg. And um, in that, we have some varieties that are created for microclimates, are frost resistant. This Bear Island Flint on the far right grows about this tall and, and will not tip over in a sear wind. I've seen a Monsanto field flattened, and I've seen a one, one like this five miles away still standing. Yeah? We don't grow it right next to the Monsanto fields because it messes up our corn. And um, that corn is higher in nutritional value than anything you can buy at the store, higher in amino acids, higher in antioxidants, higher than in basic vitamins, and higher in protein. Um, these corn varieties are, are the corn varieties I would suggest of the future. This is our barrel and flint. I started with about this much from a seed bank, and I got fields of it now. And that's a guy at Menominee Reservation in Wisconsin growing out our corn. Jonesy Miller. Uh, that's my pink lady corn, very beautiful. Uh, Sue Wick is growing that down in central Minnesota. Um, this is uh, Lee Sprague's really cool Hamas corn from Hamas Pueblo that was grown. Where did he grow it? Right by here someplace, huh? Manistee. I'm going to take this to Madeline Island and grow it on Madeline Island. I think it's cool. You know, it's going to be, it's a flower corn, right? These are, do you know what hominy is? Yeah, or pasoli. These are soup corns. These are not sweet corns, right? And then this is a flower corn. The one on the far left is a Pawnee eagle corn. Now, is that a cool looking corn or what? And that corn uh, is also a part of history. I just have to tell this story, which is the Pawnees live in Nebraska for a long time, and uh, they grew that corn, and they had about eight varieties. And even when the settlers came, they lived well with it. And they're kind of like the Ojibwe's. They got along okay with the settlers until the oil companies came or the lumber barons. We, we would have done probably okay with the fur traders. And then um, what I mean they got along well is like they said that when they had, um, if the settlers had a wagon breaking down or something, the wheel broke, they, they called the Pawnees. If the horse was lame, they called the Pawnees. Or if they had, um, you know, whatever it was that they had going on. If they were having trouble with their babies, you know, having a midwife, they call the Pawnees, right? They kind of call them like a triple A. Pawnees were like triple A out there. And uh, they got on pretty good. And then what happened is, is that the federal government came and did rotten things, which is forced the removal of the Pawnees. Forced the removal of the Pawnees to Oklahoma. And they made them walk. And many of them died on the way. And uh, when they got there to Oklahoma, they had their sacred corn with them. And their corn did not grow. It, uh, it uh, withered. It did not grow. And the Pawnee were really sad that they didn't have their corn because it not only was it a part of their food, what they were familiar with, it was better for them, you know, for all of their health reasons, but also it was part of who they were and their culture. And um, so they had a really hard time. In the late 90s, they, they began this effort to restore their corn. And this woman named uh, Ronnie O'Brien called this woman named Deb Echohawk, who's the keeper of the Pawnee seeds. And I, you know, I just gave this speech in front of Deb's brother. It was very funny. 
Um, but uh, she told me I could tell her story, but she said that uh, the Ronnie O'Brien runs the Gateway Museum in Kearney, Nebraska, where the Pawnees had lived. And in that, she wanted to grow a traditional Pawnee garden, like I'm hoping that we'll have more uh, Ojibwe gardens growing here at Seventh Generation and at Seabwing Cultural Center, and perhaps elsewhere as well. Um, in that, the, uh, uh, she called them and she could not find the seeds, so she asked the Pawnees if they would give her some seeds. And they deliberated uh, long and hard because they had so few seeds left. And they, they, but they could not get them to grow. And so they prayed and they had a, a discussion. And the elders agreed to send the seeds back to Nebraska. And they sent the seeds to Nebraska. And when they sent them to Nebraska, they flourished. And the corn varieties came back. And so um, that's their eagle corn. It grows again. But what Deb said is that the seeds remember the land it came from. And uh, last year, they had a Welcome Home Pawnee Days in Kearney, Nebraska, at which 7,000 or 8,000 people came and welcomed home the Pawnees. And so I tell you that story because it is a story of how corn makes history. And corn is more than a seed or something you buy at the store. It has a, a story with it. It has a spirit. It has a presence. And in this case, I think it offered someone a chance at redemption. And I think it is a great thing. So I tell that story because my father also uh, used to tell me something before he passed away. And he used to say to me, Winona, you're a really smart young woman. You say, you're a really smart young woman, but I don't want to hear your philosophy if you can't grow corn. That's what my dad said. And I understood about 10 years ago what he meant. And today I'm a corn grower. And I think I'm a better person for that. So what else this means is that it turns out that if you re-indigenize or at least go to organic agriculture, just as an example that is local in this country, I'm not talking about organic agriculture that you ship in from California to Michigan. I'm talking about relocalizing organic agriculture in this country, you know, which is like a revolutionary idea, I realize. But in that, you will reduce CO2. First of all, you will reduce fuel consumption substantially in this country. Maybe 25% of the fuel that is used is on agriculture and shipping stuff around and cleaning up things like the dead zone at the bottom of the Mississippi. And then in addition to that, you have a shot at sequestering carbon. Because organic agriculture keeps the carbon in the soil. It does not bring it back out. And in itself, that is an essential element of addressing climate change. So you reduce your fuel consumption, you eat better, and you address some of the issues around climate change just with organic agriculture. And I tell you this because the conventional wisdom, if we will call it that, the wisdom that is promoted largely, whether it is by the Obama administration or the industry, including the industry here in, in Michigan, is that one should find a way to sequester carbon, like for instance, by burying it offshore or back down underground, or sequestering it outside of the coal plants and putting it someplace else. And I would suggest to you that it is possible that there is no carbon ferry that is going to put that carbon someplace. It's kind of like the nuclear waste ferry. They don't exist. And one would do better to not create it, CO2 emissions in the first place, and to reduce greenhouse gas emissions rather than later on despite the fact that regulations discuss it and that we allow it under regulation to try to fix it because it's way easier 
to mitigate and to stop than it is to try to fix something and pray that technology will have some solution. So that is an example of what we're doing on my reservation. That combined with uh, renewable energy, uh, we have uh, two small, small wind turbines well, of a 75, and we're putting up a 1.5. Um, and I know that I, I was over at seventh generation, and they're looking at putting up a wind turbine. Um, you know, the combinations of things one can do to make a difference are significant. My organization, the White Earth Land Recovery Project, is actively engaged in both restoration of uh, localized agriculture and restoration of a localized energy system that's more efficient. And we're doing that because it's the right thing to do for our community. It's philosophically the right thing to do based on our teachings. We're also doing it because it is economically the right thing to do for any community. That is to say that the U.S. spends one-fifth of its money on energy. And when you're an inefficient junkie, like we are, quite frankly, the problem is, is that the vagaries of world fossil fuel prices and energy country, co company whims deeply affect your economy. That is the reality, and you see it now at the pump. And see, you see it now in terms of the amount of influence that energy companies wield on America. The more that you address addiction, become efficient, and relocalize, the better shot you have at some kind of control over your economy over the long haul. That's our simple assessment from my reservation, because we don't have any dinosaurs. And we see a vast leak of our money towards energy companies, which we would rather keep in-house with energy efficiency, solar, and wind and reducing our need. Similarly, food, you could export, you know, you could keep exporting shrimp from China, or you could figure out how to eat a little bit more locally, you know? And in that, you create an economy. Michigan certainly needs an economy which works. And an economy like that that is localized, provides far more, many, far more jobs, and keeps far more money in the community than anything that is exported in a, to a global community. Just our assessment. Um, instead of the credit we get, I don't know if you can see my cartoon, but it basically says, this, how's this? You teach us how to irrigate and plant corn, and we'll decimate your tribe and name a baseball team after you. Anyway, that's kind of really how it actually is, but anyway. This is our prophet, one of our prophecies, which is basically about where we are and where we're going. Uh, Hopis, kind of a cool prophecy story, but basically you can see you got two paths. That's our teaching as Anishinaabe. You got two paths. One is green and one is scorched. And they say it's your choice upon which path to embark. The assessment of most indigenous people is you take one path and you aren't going to do well. The other path where you grow corn, right, might be hanging out for a few more millennium. Not sure on that one, but might want to think about it. Okay, look at that. I just, uh, we have to, I have to thank Angie again. How do you deconstruct thinking? You can start with something like that. I might be a big leap for you in your university, but that is Bemidji State. Bemidji State University has a bilingual signage program. The city of Bemidji has 121 businesses. Did we talk about this? Huh? 119, he did read the article. Uh, businesses that now have bilingual signage in the businesses, recognizing the Ojibwe people. Might be nice to be recognized. I'll just leave it at that. Does it does it does encourage uh, thinking outside the box? That it encourages a recognition of the history of the land here. Um, 
That's the bathroom sign, obviously, for the women's restroom at Bemidji State. Um, how does one um, more broadly redo these things? Um, the, th the teachings that we have as Anishinaabe people are teachings that um, I think have some salience in this society. I'm going to go back to my Ojibwe one, which is to say our teachings of we are all related, <clears throat> considering the seventh generation from now, being respectful on what you take, leaving the rest, um, and that the Creator's law is the highest law, I think are salient teachings for economics and economic systems here in America. Some of these teachings are reflected in the teachings of, uh, of um, ecological economics. In that four elements of ecological economics, uh, Costanza and Daly, page 56, in case you need a reference, um, is um, one, sustainability, two, inter and intra-species distribution of wealth, three, discounting and intergenerational justice, and four, dealing with non-monetized values, imprecision, and uncertainty. What's that all mean? To start with the idea of sustainability, the idea that um, what we're talking about when we discuss sustainability is probably not how you sustain this level of consumption. The term sustainability is kind of thrown around. Sustainable development, sustainable economics. You guys heard these terms, right? We need to be clear that we are not talking about sustaining this level of inefficiency or this level of consumption. Because neither, neither is, in fact, sustainable. And rethinking what we mean by sustainability or being clear so that it is sustainable in terms of ecosystems and in terms of cultural values and in terms of cultures is essential. The second term that they use, inter and intraspecies distribution of wealth, is key. That is to say, we have become anthropocentric. And we view things all in terms of their benefit to us. But at some point, the wealth of the pelicans on the Gulf Coast, right? Or the wealth of the fish that live in the Great Lakes, that they have a right, basically, to have an ecosystem within which to live in dignity is a valid part of any economic analysis. That is the argument made by ecological economists. The third construct, the discounting and, intergen and intergenerational justice, is key. That's to say that, by and large, most economic classes that you will all take, including many that I've taken, will make the argument that the present value is of greater value than future values, and those are discounted. That is a fundamentally flawed economic argument, in that those who are not yet here have some basic rights to have an ecosystem, food, water, upon which to live. And so the idea of compromising that for present values, particularly when we consider that many of those values are based on quarterly profits of corporations, is something that is fundamentally flawed in its sustainability as an economic system or as a, as a cultural worldview. And four, the idea of addressing non-monetized values is essential. 
not all things can be counted. Not all things can be valued. I don't know the price tag of clean air or clean water. You know, Enbridge probably set one, right? In a big spill in Kalamazoo. I don't know what the price tag is, though. I think there might not be one. Those are considerations that come fundamentally from indigenous thinking that are now reflected in larger economic thinking. And I think, indeed, merit consideration. Um, is it possible to undo? Yeah. This here, um, the idea of naming and unnaming. Guy from Alaska knows this. He used to be called Mount McKinley, called? Denali. Right, Mount Denali. Did you guys need counseling up there in Alaska? Were you okay with that? We managed. You managed. See, it, it didn't even hurt that much. There's this place called Ayers Rock. Hear of that? Right, in Australia. And now it's called Uluru, right? It's okay. Yeah. It's all right. I'm pretty sure that, you know, it was all right. You know what I mean? We're okay on that one. You got names like, uh, like that guy, the Rhodes Scholar, Cecil Rhodes. He didn't even get a, a mountain named after him. He got a whole country, right? That country was Rhodesia. They don't call it Rhodesia anymore. What do they call it? Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe right? It's okay. Let go. Just let go of some of that stuff, it's okay, just let it go. You know what I mean? Just take a deep breath, it's gone. Uh, this here, recent Haida Gwaii. Used to be called Queen Charlotte Islands. Mm, I'm pretty sure she wasn't even there. You know what I'm saying? Off of British Columbia, that's going to be a bigger battle. You know, I don't know British Columbia, where that all came from, but since the Haidas lived there for 10,000 years, I'm feeling like Haida Gwaii is okay, right? It's okay. Let go of some of those. Now, Michigan, of course, is blessed with a few more Anishinaabeg names than other states. So, you know, you guys got a little bit of breathing room, but you got some places to work on, I'm sure. I was just in Colorado, which is full of mountains named after guys who killed Indians, which is a really bad idea to start with. Just to start with, you know. Don't, don't even get me started on how miserable Colorado is in this saving. But I'm saying it is possible. Uh, indigenous thinking is valid thinking, is in part our thinking. The rights of nature, in closing, at the UN, no, at the People's Conference held in Bolivia on climate change, the rights of Mother Earth was presented as a document adopted by those in attendance at the Bolivian Conference on Climate Change. Among those articles, Mother Earth is a living being. Her rights include the right to life and to exist, the right to be respected, the right to generate biocapacity, and to continue vital cycles and processes free of human disruptions, the right to maintain its identity, integrity as a distinct, self-regulating, and interrelated being, the right to water, the right to clean air, the right to be free from contamination, pollution, or toxic or radioactive waste, the right to not have its genetic structure modified or disrupted in a manner that treats it, its integrity or vitality, that threatens its integrity or vital or healthy functioning. Interesting. Set of proposals that came out of Bolivia last week, the Bolivian Congress, Parliament, adopted the rights of Mother Earth as a part of their constitution. What is that to say? That some countries are more enlightened than others is what I would say. 
and that it is possible in this day and age for nation states, cities, municipalities, and tribal governments to rethink who has rights, and that in the end, I would make the case that Mother Earth it does in fact have rights. Um, broader implications, it is something of thinking, and it's something of what the future is. Uh, that's my organization, if you want to find out more about our work, Honor the Earth, and um, thank you very much for your time. Miigwech.